one bomb that dropped but didn't explode not far from me. I stopped like an idiot to have a look. What I saw on it surprised me. On it, it had written with big letters, property of NATO. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. I am sitting here with a very, very fascinating man, and I've actually tried to record this episode a while ago, but I was listening so fascinated that we didn't manage to record it last time, so today we're going to do it. I'm sitting here with Captain Adamos Marneros. I found out that he was the last pilot who landed at Nicosia Airport the 20th of July 1974 which was just before the Turkish army invaded Cyprus and before the airport closed forever. So, Adamos Maneros, welcome to Most Memorable Journeys. Thank you. Nice to see you. And thank you so much for being on this. Let's talk a little bit about being a pilot and why did you want to become a pilot? Because we're talking about many years ago. What happened? How did you decide to become a pilot? Well, Elizabeth, I was born in 1944, living in the village of Polymitia, where I grew up. As I became a teenager, I was a very anxious boy. I was looking for something. I didn't know what I was looking for. But one thing that attracted me is anything that flies. Birds, kites, and the occasional aeroplane flying over village which those days were all propelled aircraft like DC-3s and DC-4s. And the noise attracted me up in the sky until I lost sight of the aircraft. One day, at the age of 14, a crossbray arrived in Cyprus to spray the plantations of the Lanidis family. And I saw this little aeroplane and run and run and run in the fields until I discovered where it landed. It landed in a small stretch of an airfield. It wasn't an airfield, it was a a stretch of a road. I begged the pilot to let me have a look at it. He did, but when I asked him to take me up, he said no, (laughs) and I was so upset. And I walked back home two and a half hours after that. And uh, I thought, I want to be a pilot. I must be a pilot. But those days, there were no Cypriot pilots. It was known of how to become a pilot. So, but in my youth, as a child, being a sort of businessman, I would say, I used to, in the springtime, go in the fields and pick up violets and all the wildflowers, bring them home, make them into bunches. And I used to climb under the barbed wire into the uh, British village that it was built after the the Eoka uprising here in Cyprus, where all the British families of the servicemen working from Episcopi and uh, Akrodiri were living. So I found an opening under the uh, barbed wire and I used to illegally go and knock on the doors and sell this to the families. One day I knocked on the door and a very kind lady said to me, how many bunches you got there? I said, maybe about 20. She said, I have them all. Her name was Mrs. Swinburne. And uh, she said, come on in, come and have a cup of tea. So with my little English, I accepted. And she made me a cup of tea and she paid me for the 20 bunches. Just before I left, a a gentleman walked in, in in a pilot's uniform, her husband, Captain Swinburne. Mrs. Swinburne introduced me to him. And I said, you a pilot? He said, yes, I fly from Akrotiri. I said to him, I want to be a pilot. He said, really? I help you. And this man guided me, helped me, got me some books, aviation books, and he even booked for me a medical 
at Akrotiri Hospital to establish whether I was fit to be a pilot. And so he took me under his umbrella and he was guiding me, helping me and telling me what I need to do to become a pilot. When I finished the uh, college, there were no jobs available in Cyprus in 1960. I worked as a docker at Limassol Dogs. And the manager of the company there asked me if I want a better job at a, uh, an office dog's body, really. And uh, I accepted, even at a lower salary. But when I told him I wanted to become a pilot and go to England and train, he uh, very kindly uh, gave me a free ticket and collected about 50 pounds from the rest of the staff and wished me good luck. First time I would have been in, a, in an aeroplane as a passenger. That was a comet that took me from uh, uh, Nicosia Old Airport to London Heathrow with a suitcase and 50 pounds in my pocket with a dream of becoming a pilot. I don't want to bother you into that. Because you did become a pilot. Because I did. At yes. The end, at you, the end, yes. You did and you so, made it. And who was your first employer then? Who did you work for once you had trained? Actually, um, if you don't mind, I'll say that I was, with the, with the help of Captain Swinburne, he arranged an interview for me with the Ministry of Civil Aviation in the UK to join the REF. Okay. And they uh, accepted me. They, they gave me a, a commission to fly buccaneers on aircraft carriers training uh, in Cromwell. And uh, I had a secure place to start in October 1965, having left Cyprus in 1963, in October 65, I had a commission to start with the RAF. But in the meantime, before going, having passed my GCEs, which were required by the RAF, I had uh, three months free to prepare myself. So I went and got myself a job as a waiter in Great Yarmouth in England, East Anglia. And uh, there I was working to buy myself some clothes and everything ready to go into commission with the RAF. But one morning I received a telegram saying that my brother was seriously injured in a car accident. Would I go home? All the money I had saved went on an air ticket, came to Cyprus. But before leaving UK, I had an interview with the Civil Aviation Training School at the London School of Flying in just north of London. And they offered me a position there to start in February 1966. I accepted it, but didn't have the money. So they they registered me down as, uh, as, a, as a candidate. Then this telegram arrived, came to Cyprus. My brother had died. He was 17 years old. At the funeral, a cousin of my mother's approached me and asked me what I was doing in England. I explained to him that I had a, a definite uh, training course with the RAF in, in October and also a civil aviation training course, the London School of Flying, in February. And he asked me, how much money do you need? I said, I need 3,800 pounds then. But to start with, 1,500 pounds to get me through the first part of the license would have been, would have been acceptable. So he lent me the money without any guarantee of I went to England. I cancelled the course with the RAF and I uh, started with, uh, with the London School of Flying in February 1966. Then I needed the extra money for the second part of the license, but luckily the airlines were desperately looking for pilots those days and I had uh, 
three sponsorships offered to me, one by Invicta Airways, Dan Air and British Midland. I chose Invicta because they were paying me £22 a year more than the other two. <laughs> Their money was very important those days anyway. so It still is. I started, uh, I started training for the second part of the licence with a commitment to work for, with Invicta for three years. And uh, I finished, started flying with Invicta Airways, based at Manston Airport in Kent. A little airline, but very fun, very fun flying with them. They paid for the sponsorship, and my commitment was to work with them for three years. A year later, they went bankrupt, and I was left without job. And obviously, I had to look for another job. At that time, there was a, uh, an airline being started in Malta, Oh, yeah. So tell me about Air, how you ended up in Air Malta. Melita. Air yes. Melita. Yeah. The ex-chief pilot of Pan America was the chief pilot of this airline, and he was recruiting. And some friends of mine said, why don't you apply as well? Um, they were looking for pilots to fly the brand-new Boeing 737s based in Malta. So I applied, and he accepted me, and I started the training course here in the UK uh, with Britannia Airways on the brand new 737. When I finished that, I ended up in Malta waiting for the aircraft to arrive from the States and to also uh, uh, complete the training on the aircraft. But for political reasons, the airline did not get off the ground and I found myself about six months after I arrived there, out of a job. The agreement was, whilst I was in Malta waiting for the aircraft, was that we would live free at the Hilton Dragonara, but no salary. So all the little cash that I took with me disappeared. I couldn't eat outside the Hilton. I couldn't move outside the Hilton because I didn't have any money. But then when the government decided to put the screws on, the, on Air Melita for political reasons, I had to get back to England somehow. And I flew back as a stowaway on the British Airways merchantman. As a stowaway? As did you hear stowaway. that? As a stowaway, <laughs> yes. How did I manage that? I, I put on my pilot's uniform left everything behind that I took, the little suitcase, just my briefcase, and with the uh, arrangement with the senior steward and my ex-wife, who was a British Airways stewardess, they advised me to be the last to board. Having seen everybody boarding the aircraft, I waited until the last passenger boarded, so I walked right across the tarmac, went into up the stairs, and then straight into the toilet, took my uniform on, put a sweater on, and found the first seat, sat down, had beautiful service all the way to London. Good so, old times. I don't think that would be possible today, would it, to just walk? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, no, today yeah. with the security there is. It would there be is, difficult. It yeah. won't be. But whilst I was in Malta, I must have written every week a letter to Cyprus Airways. I rang Cyprus Airways and asking them if they were looking for pilots uh, to uh, employ me. But because Cyprus Airways was totally run by British, British pilots and their the chief pilot was British and the rest of the crew were all British. They didn't want to open the floodgates for Cypriots to get in. Quite naturally, I understand that. Cyprus Airways was the dream of, of an airliner for retired British Airways pilots and other young ones that British Airways trained but didn't want. So why would they employ me? But I kept telling them my address, where it was, 
and I was in Malta in the Dragonara Hilton, and uh, also I was sending them my CV, which was very limited anyway. So I find myself in London with not knowing where to go. But I thought, ah, I will go to Kent, to Ramsgate, where I used to live before in Victor when under, and to my digs. I used to rent a room at a house belonging to Mrs. Godfrey, a nice old lady. But I didn't have the money to buy myself a ticket. So my girlfriend and my wife, ex-wife, um, lent me five pounds, bought myself a ticket, one-way ticket to Kent, Ramsgate in Kent, and I walked up to Mrs. Godfrey. And she uh, opened the door and she was shocked to see me after about six, seven months. And I explained to her what happened. I asked her if my old room was still available. And she said, yes, my son, of course it is. I said, can I stay? Yes, of course you can. I have no money. Don't worry. When you get a job, you pay me. Made me a cup of tea and a sandwich. And uh, she showed me back to my room. Came down and she said, by the way, a letter arrived for you uh, the other day. And I said, oh, for me here? Yes. I looked at the envelope. It said on the outside, Cyprus Airways. Well, I, I ripped it off and read uh, the letter inside, which was saying, you are invited for an interview at the Sky Hotel's Heathrow at 10 o'clock the next day. So I thought, this can only be a miracle. Borrowed 10, uh, 10 pounds from Mrs. Godfrey. She was a nice lady, that Absolutely Mrs. Godfrey, wonderful. wasn't she? Yes. I, I, uh, I booked myself a train ticket. I arrived at the Skyways Hotel right outside uh, Heathrow Airport at 9 o'clock. Interview was at 10 o'clock. I waited until 10 o'clock and uh, I went to reception, asked to get in touch with Captain Peter Wolf, the chief pilot, who was to, to interview me. And they said, no, I'm afraid he's out. His key's here. Anyway, I waited. He rolled in at quarter past 11, and I, I recognized him because I have seen pictures of him. I went to him and I said, Captain Wolf, my name is Adam Maneros. I, uh, I have an interview with you at 10 o'clock. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, give me half an hour and I'll be down. He came down in half an hour. We found a corner in the reception area and we started the interview. And he was asking me about my experience. I said, well, you haven't been reading my letters I've sent you with my CV? He said, well, you tell me, what have you flown? I said, I have flown Vikings, I have flown DC Force, and I did a ground school training for a Boeing 737. He said, why should I employ you? I have so many ex-British Airways qualified pilots on the Trident, and they're ready to come in and jump in. And I said, in other words, you haven't been reading my CVs that I've been sending you. Do you realize what I had to go through to get back here for the interview today? He said, no, it doesn't matter to me. In other words, you're telling me you cannot employ me. He said, yes, that's true. And uh, I said, well, I'm a Cypriot. He said, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. He said, I want to employ the most qualified ones. I said, fair enough, but you wasted uh, my money and my time. And I, to be honest, I started crying and I left. I went back to Mrs. Godfrey's um, digs. And I got myself a job as a taxi driver. And I was earning enough to pay the, uh, the rent, to feed myself and to also save some money to send to my mother because we had uh, eight brothers and sister offsprings to feed and uh, I was helping with the survival of the rest of the family. And uh, whilst I was taxi driving, 
Uh, one day I wrote back to my dicks and Mrs. Goffrey says to me, that was about three months later, uh, there's another letter for you that arrived here. And I thought, well, who knows this address? I'd never given it to anybody. And I certainly did. Cyprus Airways didn't have that when I was living in, in Malta. And that was, again, a letter from Cyprus Airways. I opened it up. He was telling me that I was successful at the interview uh, and I would be starting a training course with British Airways Training Centre in October 1969. And, of course, I was elated of that. And that's how I... I I came to join Cyprus Airways. That's amazing. So you actually, you were the first Cypriot pilot, weren't you, for Cyprus Airways? The first Cypriot captain because because in the meantime, they sponsored one other boy, Cypriot boy, with British Airways to train as a pilot. But I was the first... The first captain. Captain, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, you started working for them. Cyprus Airways was growing at the time, wasn't it? Yes, uh, we. Uh, um, when I joined, there were uh, uh, two Trident aircraft, and then another two arrived, and then we leased uh, a Bug One Eleven as well. And the airline would have grown, grown, grown until the war in nineteen seventy-four. Yeah, and that's came. that's. So you were flying for Cyprus Airways, and uh, things were heating up in Cyprus. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that famous flight, that flight mm-hmm. CY317 on July 19th. You were flying from Larnaca, from Larnaca, not from Larnaca, you see. I'm used to saying Larnaca because that's the airport that I know. I've never flown from Nicosia, but you were flying from Nicosia to London on that day. What happened? Yes, I, I was promoted to a captain in May 1974, and I had completed four flights in command on the 18th of July 1974 I was scheduled to fly my fifth uh, flight in command to London having said that uh, Nicosia airport was closed um, due to the coup which the junta carried out to depose Makarios. But they reopened again on the 18th of July. And I scheduled to take out the first flight to London. And on that flight, I took with me my uh, wife and uh, little daughter, Nicola. And uh, we arrived in London late evening of the 18th of July. On the 19th of July, the next day, I was scheduled to bring back the aircraft via Rome. CY317, a scheduled flight, London, Heathrow, Rome, Nicosia. But all night of the 18th and during the day of the 19th, I was glued on the TV. I was switching from BBC One to ITV. And all I could see was ships, Turkish ships being loaded with armored vehicles, soldiers, aircraft being loaded with bombs. And it was obvious that an invasion of Cyprus was imminent. And the British reporters in uh, Izmir and in Ankara were describing a situation of an imminent war. So I was so anxious that really there was no joke. This was for real. Although, although the politicians that, uh, um, with the Turkish uh, Prime Minister Ecevit, they were declaring that they were carrying out uh, military exercises. But of course, anybody with brain will realize that this was just a political gimmick. And my desperation, I rang... Um, the uh, general manager in Cyprus and told him what I was seeing on TV in UK and asked him whether we should cancel the flight back to Nicosia on there. And he, he was adamant that the flight should go on. But now I understand why he, 
he was adamant. He was under a lot of pressure from the puppet uh, uh, president that uh, was bestowed after the expulsion of Makarios that all, all foreign nationals should leave Cyprus. The government was being under a lot of pressure from the embassies of the various various uh, expatriates who were holidaying, as mainly in Famagusta, and mainly British, to return them back to their countries. So the, the general manager had no option, really, but to advise me to go back. But then I rang the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the UK, and I spoke to a gentleman called Mr. Humphreys and told him who I was and my, my predicament and asked him for advice. Well, he said, I can't really tell you any details, but uh, let's put it that way. If I was in your position, I wouldn't go. I said, thank you, but it's not up to me anyway. So the 19th in the afternoon, I was scheduled to take the flight back to Cyprus. I gathered the, the crew and I, I told them what I did. The general manager insists that we should return. We have no option. So we went to Heathrow to meet the incoming aircraft. When I spoke to the incoming crew, they were surprised that we were going back. So I rang the general manager again and pleaded with him we should cancel the flight. And he said, no, I said the flight should, should uh, take place. So I said, in that case, I am the captain. The flight is scheduled through Rome. We have no passengers for Rome or to take to Rome. Therefore, I will carry out the schedule. He said, do what you can, what you want, uh, as long as you bring the aircraft back. Well, on the flight, we had seven passengers, a family of four Greek Cypriots, father, mother, and two daughters, and a, a, a couple of Turkish Cypriots with their son. So that's all. We arrived in Rome late at night and uh, asked my co-pilot to go into the office and send a telegram to our operations department and asked what the situation was in Cyprus. The message came straight back and said, everything is very quiet. The airport is, uh, is guarded by Ioka B commandos, the people that carried out the, the coup to Makarios, and it's all very quiet. I said, no chance of you speaking to the general manager again? and ask him if he changed his mind. They said, well, we wouldn't dare wake him up at this time of the night. I asked the engineers to check the aircraft inside out, mechanically, hoping that we will find something wrong that would give me a good reason to cancel the flight. But unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, sarcastically, because everything was perfect. So at midnight, Rome time, we took off for Nicosia. Very quiet night. We were the only aeroplane flying in the Eastern Mediterranean. We have not had any other aircraft until we hit Rome, Rhodos. At Rhodos, we turned right direct to Nicosia. And as normal, we had the, the radar screen scanning the sea, showing us the coastline of Turkey, and then later on, the coastline of Cyprus. Just outside Antalya, which is not far from Rhodes, we noticed five dots, five dots which I'd never seen before. And we examined them carefully. We could even see the wash from these ships. And straight away, we assumed they were Turkish ships heading for Cyprus. When we crossed the... Uh, the boundary into the Greek Cypriot airspace, I mentioned this to the air traffic controller that I can see five ships heading for Cyprus. He noted that and then he made no comment. He thanked me for that and we continue. Then the coast of Cyprus, firstly Paphos area, 
was painting on the radar. And I noticed outside Porto of Paphos, six dots all gathered more or less together. And I mentioned that to the air traffic control of Nicosia again. They noted that, and it turned out that these six dots was the American Sixth Fleet. That's what we found out after after the war. Mm. But at that time, we were descending, and I asked air traffic if I could stay at 15,000 feet and do a circle of Cyprus. Now, time then was 3.55 in the morning. I started with Larnaca and made a left turn towards Famagusta. Outside Famagusta port, I noticed a very huge dot with two other smaller dots. And then I took a piece of paper, drew the map of Cyprus, and I started putting on, the, on, on that where I see the dots. And I mentioned this again to the air traffic control. It turned out this was the British helicopter carrier, Hermes, which came over in preparation to evacuate the British nationals. When towards Cape Andreas, and then made a left turn towards Carinha, uh, that's where I saw six dots almost touching the coast of Carinha, and another five dots just outside Messina of Turkey. Well, I counted all the ships then, 21. I mentioned it to air traffic control, and I said, please, can you speak to the military headquarters in Carinha area and tell them what I'm seeing? I am of the opinion that the invasion had already started because the dots outside Carinha were very close to the, the coastline. And then eventually they came back within 30 seconds and told me the military in Carinha say that everything is normal. They instruct you to land as soon as possible. I said, no, wake up my general manager again and tell him. They did. He came back within 40 seconds and he said, the general manager says you must land immediately. A few years later, when uh, Adamos Combos uh, wrote a book about the last flight to Nicosia, he interviewed the air traffic controller who was speaking to me at Nicosia, and he told him that a, a Greek army officer had a gun on his head and, and instructed him to tell me to land as soon as possible. That explained why the answer to my questions came back so quickly. That's crazy. I mean, you you could see what was going to happen and nobody wanted to hear exactly. it. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, I landed at Nicosia at 10 past four in the morning. The passengers went through the normal channels and we went through customs clearance and there was a, a, a Greek uh, police officer and he was asking me, what was going on if we see anything up there. And I said, yes, here is the map. All the ships, we're surrounded with ships. He said, can I keep it? I said, yes, you keep it. And then we, we went to our office, operations office, to clear the logs and the details of the flight. And the crew there wanted to know exactly what was happening. I said goodnight to my staff, my crew, they went and I was the last to leave. I went outside into my car and started the engine, but I could hear the engine roaring like a tractor. I turned it off and the engine continued. I got out of the car and I looked up on the sky as dawn was breaking and I could see about 15, 20 turboprop uh, aircraft dropping parachutes over Nicosia Airport. And at the same time, the fighters, the F-104s, were dropping uh, Nepal bombs to the uh, army camp right next door to the airport. And it turned out they killed many, many Greek soldiers in their sleep. 
And then I had a decision to make. What do I do? Do I stay here or do I jump in my car and go home? I did. I decided to go home, knowing that if I stayed there, I would have been shot. But again, knowing that I might be, I might, I might have a bomb dropped on me on the way to Nicosia. Well, on the way to Nicosia, I saw a few F-104s dropping bombs left, right, and center. But I saw one bomb that dropped but didn't explode not far from me. I stopped like an idiot to have a look. What I saw on it surprised me. On it, it had written with big letters, property of NATO. That was a NATO bomb that was being used to kill us. Yeah, that's so, uh, that's another story. I think that is really, um, you know, the whole situation, the whole political part of this invasion would be material for another podcast. Absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to just to, to sum it up. This was the last time a plane ever landed at Nicosia Airport and then it closed forever. Absolutely. And the aircraft that I landed there was bombed and uh, exploded into pieces by the Turkish Air Force because some idiots drove it Uh, pushed it onto the uh, runway to prevent Turkish aircraft landing there. Stupid idea, but nevertheless, it's now in pieces. And all planes, all Cyprus Airways planes at the time were lost. All of them. All yes. of them were lost. Yes. And there was no more airport and no more aircrafts. And uh... Absolutely. No airport, no aircraft, except one aircraft was uh, rescued by taking pieces from the other three tridents and rescued it, flew it to, uh, to Tel Aviv for um, proper maintenance and from there to London where British Airways flew it uh, for a while. And now it's in Duxford Museum in England. Wow. That aircraft. I want to jump a little bit here because um, a lot of things happened. Obviously, the invasion happened. 200,000 people lost their homes. But, you know, life went on. Life always goes on. When did flights start again? When did the airport open again? Because Well, well after, after the, uh, the second invasion stopped, uh, I decided to leave to go back to England. Uh, the only way I could get to England was via a ship, a passenger ship that arrived in Limassol and then to Athens, Piraeus, the Athens airport, and fly there to London on British Airways, which I did. But would you like to know what happened on the sh- of my... Mm, yeah, well, briefly, yes, briefly. yes, yeah. yes, I oh. know, because it's interesting what happened yeah. on that ship, yes. Well, on, the, on, on that ship... I saw the ex-puppet president, Nikos Samson, who was going to Greece illegally to speak to the Greek government. That's... Uh, and he was really an amazing conversation I had with him, but obviously it's, it's too long to... It's a crazy bit yeah. of information and, uh, yeah, very political as well. But let's go on. I want to talk a little more about Cyprus Airways and how it continued. Well, I was in England and uh, trying to find a job, but difficult at that time. There were no pilot jobs uh, available, so I, uh, I worked as a waiter and as a painter for a while, but then I got a, I received a call from the general manager asking me to go back to Cyprus to uh, help a team to look for a new airport. I arrived back the same way as I left by Athens and by ship, by ship, and then we went looking to find an old World War II airfield, which was rumored to have been built in Larnaca. And we did. We found some foundations there. And with the help of a few diggers, we cleaned it up, which was a rubbish collection area uh, of Larnaca. We found out, yes, there was an an airfield there. And that's the present runway, Larnaca Airport. And from there, we had some sheds built as departure and arrival lounges. 
that's where Lanaka is now. That's and that how was, it started again. Yeah, we started again in Ma- April, April. In March two, uh, 1975, we went to British Midland to train on Viscount aircraft, which we leased from British Midland. Then we completed the course and we started flying with Viscounts. Then we extended the runway and we leased Douglas DC-9s to fly as far as Salonika and then from Salonika to London. And then eventually they extended the runway a little bit more and we leased the DC-8. We were able to fly direct to London, to Muscat, to Dubai and, and, Paris, and Paris, yes. So, uh, and that's Lanaga Airport took off. Then. Yeah, but yeah. you were telling me in a previous conversation about flying goods. You were taking out seats in the in the night during the Viscount era. Uh, we used to take the seats out in the evening, and we will fly a load of Sultana grapes and melons to Beirut, and from Beirut on TMA cargo airliner to Europe. Amazing. Yes. And that was the way to for the country to start uh, trade. Uh, trade. To, yeah, to start trade. to make some yeah. money. So, how much longer did you work for Cyprus Airways after that? Because uh, that was also quite a political matter, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, it was. I joined 19, uh, Cyprus Airways in 1969, and in 1984. I became the chief pilot of the airline, but uh, I wasn't getting on very well with the uh, unions and with the uh, various chairmen of the airline because <laughs> they were under restrictions from the then government to keep good relationship with the with the unions, and uh, of course that came into a conflict for, with safety. And I wasn't uh, really tolerating that. I left uh, in 1990 and I joined Airbus Industries. Airbus Industries offered me the job as a a flight trainer. I want to interrupt you here because you were mentioning safety. Can you remember any dangerous incidents on any flights in uh, Uh, in your time with Cyprus Airways? Not only with Cyprus Airways. I mean, anybody that flies for 38 years and doesn't have any, any incidents, uh, he's, he's lying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my first incident was on the 8th of July, 1968, when I was flying for Invicta. I was a co-pilot of DC-4s. We had a contract to fly uh, missiles to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, for Haile Selassie. Oh, my God, yes. And... Uh, that aircraft, DC-4, with the load, wasn't really suitable airport aircraft to do that trip. But of course, the, the company didn't want to lose the contract, so we did it. We did a, a Coventry, Malta, nice stop, Malta, Cairo, nice stop. The next day, long trip, 10 and a half hours from Cairo to Addis Ababa. Weather on forecast was, as we were told, perfect. When we arrived over Addis Ababa, the weather was terrible, uh, low cloud, rain, and we couldn't land. We attempted twice. We could not see the runway legally on minima. So on the third attempt, we decided we will. We only had enough fuel to do one more attempt. And on the third attempt, we decided we will go until we either crash or see the runway. Eventually, we saw the runway at 150 feet instead of the minimum 400 feet, and we landed. But when we reached the end of the runway, we were so uh, exhausted and drained, put the parking brake on with the engines running, and after one minute, one by one, the engines were shutting down due to lack of fuel. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we were very close to death. Yes. Yeah. The other incident I had, of course, is what I described in July, 20th July, 1974. Yeah. And on the 
8th of December, 75, when I was flying DC-9s, I had a trip from Athens to Larnaca, but the weather in Larnaca was bad. We could not land, so we diverted to Tel Aviv, which was uh, assigned diversion airfield. When we arrived over Tel Aviv, uh, we had four Phantom fighters mm. just checking us to see whether we are an airliner and not a, an enemy. A, an enemy of of, yeah. of Arafat's sending an aircraft full of bombs over Tel Aviv. And but eventually we landed safely yeah. there. And on the 25th of December 1990, whilst I was flying for the Sultan of Brunei, we took off from London en route to Brunei via Karachi. A long trip for the Airbus A310, London to Karachi. But over Russia, we were informed that the, air, the, uh, the airway was shut. The air, airway that we were using was shut. And we had to find an alternative method to proceed, which we couldn't. Eventually, they threatened, unless we diverted, they threatened us they will send the bombers to shoot us down. <laughs> and having in mind that the Air Korean in April 20, 1978, when they shot down the, uh, and two, killed 269 people because he varied off the air, airway, I decided, let's head back. I requested to return back to Heathrow with the approval of, of His Majesty but they refused to allow us to do that, and they insisted we should land in Moscow. And uh, just as we were ready to start our descent in Moscow, they came back and apologized and asked us to proceed back to our destination, Karachi, if we wanted to. And that was a very scary moment. That sounds a bit yeah. like a movie, doesn't it? All it, this, it, it it's is. like a movie. It, it is. Now, in this, you mentioned the Sultan of Brunei. You <clears throat> started working for the Sultan of Brunei after you left Cyprus Airways. Which year was that? In 1990, when I left Cyprus, I joined Airbus Industry. And they sent me for an interview with His Majesty. And he selected me to fly and train him on the Airbus to train him is not the right word. He used flying as his hobby. I joined in July, July 1990, and the contract was for one year. I did four years with him full time. Then I took time off to look after my wife who had a spinal operation, hoping that she would recover and I'll return back. But in the meantime, I was flying maybe two or three times a month just to keep my recency for my license. And I did that for another four years, but it, unfortunately she never recovered enough for me to return back to flying full-time with the Sultan. And that was an absolute, unbelievable experience. A wonderful man, wonderful people, and wonderful environment. And I was so thankful that I had that opportunity to end my career that way. That's beautiful. In 2003. What a beautiful experience. Yeah. Now, we're coming to the end where I loved, I could talk to you for, <laughs> for hours and hours, but um, we are coming to the end of this interview. But I want to ask you, because you have been flying a lot obviously as a pilot, but you've also been flying as a passenger. And you were telling me, I think at some point you went to Sri Lanka for an interview and you were put in first class. You had some fantastic flights. Absolutely. What do you think about today's low-cost carriers and about these airlines that have appeared all over the place? Mm -hmm. Today's low-cost carriers are not the same as the low-cost carriers who were in the 1960s, 70s, Invicta being one of them. Uh, today, low-cost carriers are under a lot of scrutiny. CAA, especially of the UK, have tightened up the ropes and they are 
absolutely making sure low-cost carriers abide to the stringent regulations that uh, they impose. And I can name, if I may. Of course, yes. EasyJet is a low-cost airline. It's not so low-cost on the fees they apply, but I would say, and having flown with them many, many times, they are superb, superb. So low-cost carriers and these days are not, especially the, U, the British low-cost carriers, are as good as any other airlines, like British Airways. And, and are safe. Uh, and safe. And are safe. And absolutely safe. Yeah. Yes. So uh, there is another thing that I wanted to ask you. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you, who, who was your most famous passenger ever? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Elizabeth, you... Yeah. It was me. I'm sure I was on a flight with you too. You probably were. <laughs> yes. But you were not the most important one. Who was uh, it? Now, in my years uh, of flying, I have flown kings, queens, presidents. I even flew Arafat. Did on, you? On a quick flight from Damascus to Cyprus for a few hours and then I flew him back. I flew Princess Diana. But... The most important passenger for me is, without any doubt, my mother. Oh, that's so sweet. That's so sweet. And of course, I'm sure she was treated well on those flights when she was Absolutely. flying with you. How Absolutely. very beautiful. Absolutely. I think that's a very beautiful way to end this interview. One last thing I want to say, because we had a talk about this. If you were young today... You told me something. If you were young today, you would probably become an astronaut. Absolutely. If I was a 15, 16 year old, my aim would have been to work towards becoming an astronaut. I love to go to the moon. I love to feel not just to go outside the atmosphere, but to land on the moon. And I would have achieved it. I can guarantee you that. I am sure you would. Yes. Knowing you, I have no yeah. doubt that you would achieve yeah. that. Yeah, but I will not aim for being a pilot today. Okay. Do you know why? No. Tell me yeah. why. I started flying in 1966, 67. I was employed for my first job. Those days, we had a captain, a co-pilot, a radio operator, a navigator, and we flew the aeroplane. Today, the aeroplane flies like a computer. Yeah. And it's not the same. The aircraft can land automatically. It can stop automatically. It can navigate from A to B, 17-hour flight without even touching the controls. All you do is feed the computer the correct information. So That's it's no all. more fun. No fun. No fun. No, but I was lucky enough to have experience. I think you've had Real a flying. beautiful life of uh, flying and a beautiful career as a captain. Captain Maneros, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for spending time with me. It was a pleasure meeting you and, and uh, spending your time with me. Thank you. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.